This is the latest edition of Return to Reason with Leon Fontaine, where knowledge, common sense, and wisdom intersect. With a high value of people and their right to think for themselves, Return to Reason endeavors to present the whole story so that you can make fully informed, wise decisions and bring positive change to your life, community, and to the nation. And now, here's Leon Fontaine. There is a war of words and ideologies happening right now in Canada and most Western countries of the world. It's insidious, 24-7 online and down the street. And so it seems we've all been thrown into the battlefield. But this fight will not be won with weapons and violence, but our kids will pay the ultimate price. Everyone thinks silence is golden, but I'd argue it's yellow. Today on Return to Reason with Leon Fontaine, the responsibility of citizenship. As the saying goes, knowledge is power. If we don't have the power to fight this culture war, common sense will lose. Take the time to watch the whole show today. When you're done, you'll be forwarding it to your friends. More often than not, people form an opinion based on a sliver of information, and they stick to it no matter what falsely boasting in their commitment to that notion. In fact, it seems commonplace to completely turn off the will to hear any additional or contradicting information. To my surprise, while in my personal conversations with high-profile leaders, they often concede to have done zero due diligence or research to verify the information they are being fed by the government's posse. Imagine if civilization did this 500 years ago. We'd still be having the debate that the world is flat. We'd still be in the dark ages when it came to science, engineering, math, physics. The pursuit of knowledge, which is ever-growing as new discoveries are made, is absolutely vital to our progress as a human race. And that pursuit requires continual learning. What about things that are less tangible than science? What about understanding the way governance works? The pillars of democracy? Our rights and freedoms? Or here's a big one, our responsibilities as citizens of Canada. There is a widespread lack of knowledge when it comes to the concept of citizenship. We've had it so good for so long, some have forgotten we need to fight for our values and stand up against those who want to take money, power, status, and whatever else they can. Citizenship is precious and should not be taken for granted. I want to define some terms and provide examples to equip you to understand democracy. The critical thinking and decision-making is up to you. The Canada we live in today is very different from 10 or even 20 years ago. There's never been a more crucial time to equip ourselves with knowledge and new skills to press in to regain ground that we've lost. According to researchers, a good portion of the world's population don't have the opportunity to be citizens in any true sense of the word. They are merely slaves or serfs, stuck on that hamster wheel for generations. But most of the Western world has experienced freedom for well over 100 years. 
Things like the ability to move about freely in our country, to make a living, to buy land, and to raise a family how we see fit. Personally, I am not okay with the new standard that's being set where any politician in power can arbitrarily dictate what my freedoms look like. In Canada, we live in a democracy. The word democracy comes from the Greeks, meaning power of the people. Our democratic system is based on four pillars, executive, legislature, judicial, and the press. We also have a mixed system of free market and compassionate social programs. Regardless of what you believe about the merit of this balance, they both remain in play. We have a constitution that was crafted with British and French influence. This constitution was amended in 1982 to include the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The handling of the pandemic has caused a resurgence of discussion about the Charter. But as I said before, knowledge is power. If concerned citizens want to use the Charter to underscore their arguments, they should understand its significance and its power. When the Americans became independent from Britain, they wanted to establish kind of an ideal political system that would continue on protecting their freedoms into the future. They were trying to prevent change. They would lock in a certain political system, lock it in and prevent change from, from happening. Adopting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was, kind of, was almost the opposite of that in the sense that it was adopted to create change. Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau brought in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms because he wanted changes in the Canadian system. The idea of having constitutional protections is that if, uh, if a government brings in a law that people feel violate their constitutional rights, they can go to court. If the court believes that, those law, that the law does violate the person's rights, the court can strike down the law on the basis of the Constitution. And some people think the judges took that power to themselves, but they didn't. That was all part and parcel of the adoption of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I think it has been erosion of, an erosion of democracy because you know, we're no longer able to vote on certain policies because the judges get the final authority. So I guess we could vote on them, but then the judges have the final option of striking them down. Canada's law is based on the fundamental understanding that everyone has inherent value given to you by a higher power or nature, not issued to you by the government like a driver's license. Ethics, human rights, and a desire to protect freedoms were integral in crafting the Charter, Canada's supreme law. While the Charter did serve as a formalization of what was already common law, it changed the balance of power. Those at the provincial level raised particular concerns about how the federal government would now have more say by giving appointed judges the power to interpret and overturn laws, rather than elected officials. This seems almost counterintuitive to the rule of democracy. We do not vote for individuals because we think they are smarter or better than us but we elect them to represent us. A country can display all the window dressings of a democracy, but remain authoritarian in nature and very effective in pushing an ideological agenda. It might take decades, but it can still be very effective. Consider this. Even Russia has publicly declared itself a democratic government. 
The Honorable Brian Peckford was the premier of Newfoundland during the pivotal moments in 1981 to 1982 when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was coming to life. Peckford is the sole living member of the group who sat around the negotiation table for months refining and describing Canadians' rights and the supreme rule of law to guard those rights. Over the years from 1960 to 1980, there had been, by academics and other people in political life, an agitation for doing something more so that we had a Bill of Rights that covered every single person in the country. That led in the 1980s to Prime Minister Trudeau and the various premiers talking about doing a Bill of Rights, calling the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and putting it in the Constitution. We knew this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we had to make sure we had most things covered. And remember, this was a compromise. Section one was put in because we knew that even though those individual rights and freedoms are unbelievably important, that there may be some there may be some circumstance in the future, and we were thinking about war and insurrection and things like that, where for a short period of time these might have to be suspended or overridden. And that's why we put, we never just said. Um, yeah, section one, uh, you can override all of these wonderful light rights and freedoms uh, if you want to. We put a test in there, and that test was it had to be not justified. In section one, it says demonstrably justified. Two, by law. Three, within reasonable limits. And number four, consistent with the values of a free and democratic society. And not one government, not one government in Canada, federal or provincial, has met the test of section one. There is not one study, there's not one report, there's not one cost-benefit analysis to demonstrate that they've justified doing what they're doing now on the pandemic measures. So I understand the lack of information and knowledge that the average citizen has because there's nothing in the educational system uh, to teach them about this. And at university, they immediately become uh, subject to, vulnerable to, because they haven't got any terms of reference or any knowledge the other way, to a, a, an ideology which is anti, anti-democratic and pro-authoritarian. What is the Peckford recommendation? Any government in Canada, federal or provincial, can immediately go to their highest court and ask that court for a constitutional opinion. In this case, they could go to the courts and ask, are we within the Constitution with these measures? So to this moment, to this day, none of the premiers have taken me up on my recommendation, which would be so reasonable, so sensible. I think most Canadians who hear what I'm saying now would say, why? What have they got to lose? And that's the big question. What have they got to lose? I think they're afraid. They're afraid that either parts or all of what they've put in place will not pass muster with the highest courts in the land. According to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, rights and freedoms are enshrined in the charter because they are essential to living in a free and democratic society. 
While Section 1 of the Charter provides a guarantee of rights and freedoms, it also says they are not absolute, meaning that it could be reasonable to limit those rights and freedoms. Since the mid-80s, the test for demonstrably justifying the limitation of rights and freedoms has been called the Oaks Test. I don't have time to go into that in detail today, but let me make note of the four keys any entity wishing to limit freedoms must prove. The objective, then rational connection, minimal impairment, and proportionality. In other words, it's a four-step process to prove common sense and reason. A Canadian instructor explained it to her post-secondary students this way. If we're going to look at a piece of legislation and say, hmm, that infringes someone's charter rights, the first question we're going to ask ourselves is, does that legislation have as its objective a really, really important critical thing? And if it does, we're going to say, okay, it's passed the first test. Now we're going to move on to the next one. And we're going to say, how exactly is the statute limiting someone's right and freedom? And they'll say, well, we got to look at the way in which it's actually limiting it. And we'll look at whether or not there's any other way we could achieve the objective without trampling on someone's rights. And we'll try to make sure there's a balance between the measures we create and the actual objective of the legislation. And if we're going to create infringements, they better help us meet the objective. They can't just be arbitrary and unfair. Since the threat of COVID-19 hit Canada in spring 2020, and so many of our freedoms were put on hold in the name of public health, I am not aware of a single instance where the Oaks test has been seen or graded by a judge at any level of Canadian court. Why? At the very least, the established media should be holding the judicial system responsible for this, shouldn't they? In a time where Canadians needed them most, the checks and balances between executive, legislature, judicial, and press should be running like a well-oiled machine. I once heard it said that democracy is not a passive sport. We must discern what that looks like in 2021 as never before. Before being awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Arthur Ashe was a world-renowned tennis player and the first African-American man to achieve many accomplishments in this sport. As an obvious testament to rising above difficult circumstances, he simplified the concept beautifully with his famous quote, Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. We can all be empowered by those simple phrases and engage in democracy. We don't have to wait to become experts or in positions of influence. We can start today to exercise our citizenship. My first suggestion, take a few minutes to read the Charter. In a speech for the Democracy Fund in late October 2021, Dr. Julie Panessi rallied the crowd by elegantly stating the ethical flaws within the measures taken to curb COVID-19. It's my observation that we are facing a pandemic, not just of a virus, but a pandemic of compliance, 
and complacency in a culture of silence, censorship, and institutionalized bullying. Mainstream media, you know, they like to say that we are fighting a war of information, that misinformation, even questioning and doubt, have plagued the pandemic. But it is not only information that is being weaponized in this war, it is a person's right to think for herself. I've heard it said that, well, I don't know very much about viruses, so I shouldn't really have an opinion. But the issue is not whether or not you know more about virology than our public health officials. The issue is, why aren't we calling them out for not being willing to engage with the evidence and debate someone who has a different opinion? We should be calling not for an outcome, but for a process to be reestablished. Panessi made headlines earlier this year when she refused to take COVID vaccines and subsequently lost her job as a professor of ethics. Often, the nightly news paints naysayers to any public policy as uneducated nuts on the fringe of their professions or just downright uncredible. I have found that to be alarmingly untrue. There are so many well-spoken and credible sources speaking to the core issues at stake here. The Free North Declaration, which now has nearly 40,000 signatories, reads, We are Canadian lawyers. In our country, civil liberties are under unprecedented attack. Governments, public health authorities, universities, public and private employers, municipalities, and businesses are trampling Canadians' rights and freedoms. Our free society is at risk. A good portion of the barristers who have signed the declaration have remained anonymous. There is something very concerning afoot when lawyers across Canada are cautious to stand up and confront the socially acceptable narrative, including popular opinion about policy. Lawyers are meant to uphold and defend the rule of law. Unfortunately, headlines that reveal legal wins over the government don't seem to sell papers as much as the daily dose of fear. A lawyer who is taking a stand and asking very crucial questions is Leighton Gray, who in a recent interview on Justice with John Carpe asked in commentary, Why is protecting the healthcare system more important than upholding the rights and freedoms of the individual? and then went on later to say the charter is designed to protect the individual's rights against the actions of its government. To not uphold the Constitution and the charter is to undermine democracy. It's not only insulting to Canadians living and working today, but it erodes what so many Canadian soldiers fought for and continue to fight for around the globe. In my opinion, one of the key responsibilities of citizenship is to acknowledge and honor the sacrifices of those in public service. We do this by standing up and being counted, by conducting ourselves in a civilized manner when shining light on injustice and abuse of power. Our responsibility of citizenship is to safeguard the right to debate in search of truth. 
In a 2017 report from Freedom House, a nonpartisan organization devoted to the support and defense of democracy around the world, author Arch Puddington penned these observations. Modern authoritarianism has succeeded where previous totalitarian systems failed due to refined and nuanced strategies of repression, the exploitation of open societies, and the spread of illiberal policies in democratic countries themselves. The leaders of today's authoritarian systems devote full-time attention to the challenge of crippling the opposition without annihilating it and flouting the rule of law while maintaining a plausible veneer of order legitimacy, and prosperity. Central to this is the capture of institutions that undergird political pluralism. The goal is to dominate not only the executive and legislative branches, but also the media, the judiciary, civil society, the commanding heights of the economy, and the security forces. With these institutions under the effective control of an incumbent leader, changes in government through fair and honest elections become all but impossible. Okay, that sure paints a grim picture. But you have to admit, the similarities are startling. Did you catch that? One of the goals is to dominate the media, in essence, control what the masses hear and how they hear it. That's one of the reasons this show exists. Because I don't think Canadians are getting the whole story from mainstream media. Crucial information is being withheld. Canada is not without flaws. We all recognize that, but I just don't buy the narrative that censorship and identity politics are the ticket to a utopian society. No. In fact, only honest dialogue and the power of the people will achieve anything of substance. That's democracy. In a recent appearance with leaders on the frontier, Lord Conrad Black sets up our current state of affairs like this. The prestige of the media has severely declined and will continue to do so without a purposeful investment in education. We have an erosion of capitalism that basically ships money out of the country at a startling rate, and we don't have the quality of people in public life that we once did. All of this is reversible. It's going to take strong, confident leaders who are willing to embrace original ideas, innovation, and avoid disguising policies as social justice when they are merely a redistribution of money. Canada was not built in a day, but it can be torn apart much faster than we'd like to admit. The time to act is upon us. What are we waiting for? Earlier in the show, I mentioned how Canada runs on a mix of free enterprise and compassionate social programs. So in theory, businesses are allowed to expand and thrive, but the disenfranchised are taken care of. Over the last few years, there has been a politically charged shift to lean more heavily towards socialism in government. COVID-19 has only sped up and illuminated the narrative that was already taking place. 
Regulations and safety nets sound great, don't they? Do they? There are several international examples where we can observe to approach this topic with wisdom. For instance, after a crushing economic experiment that lasted decades, Sweden abolished many of its harsh taxation policies in the 80s and the 90s and privatized things like education. Since then, they have seen massive economic growth and subsequent increase in quality of life. About 20 years ago, Brazil had a thriving, stable economy. Then a socialist government came in, hemorrhaged money, and bottlenecked economic growth. Massive unemployment, crime, and corruption became chronic. They remade substantial problems today. What has socialism done in Venezuela? Debbie D'Souza of Prager University summarizes it like this. When Chavez first ran for president in 1999 under a myriad of socialistic Robin Hood campaign promises, he said he would leave in two years if people weren't happy with him. But like Castro, Chavez never had any intention of giving up power. He died in office in 2013, replaced by his vice president, Nicolas Maduro. The country is now a pariah, shunned by the world and isolated. People stand in line for hours just to get food. Sometimes they walk away empty-handed. A recent survey found that 75% of Venezuelan adults lost weight in 2016. This national weight loss program is known cynically as the Maduro Diet. Opposition leaders and journalists who report the truth are jailed. Once a country goes down a socialist path, there's no easy way back, and the longer a country stays socialist, the harder it is to reform. No one wants to go down the path Venezuela is on. On an international scale, strict socialism has never produced prosperity and freedom. Why aren't any bona fide disadvantages to socialism part of the conversation here in Canada when we talk about programs like universal basic income and unprecedented federal spending? Candace Malcolm wrote in the Toronto Sun, imploring for reasonable consideration of the true democratic process. Canadians elected a revolutionary socialist. At least in Venezuela, the people knew what they were voting for in Hugo Chavez. If Trudeau wants to take Canada down the dark and ruinous path of socialism, he must directly put it to Canadians for a vote. For years, I've had the honor of traveling across this great country and abroad, meeting people from all walks of life. One thing that has always intrigued me is how much passion new Canadians have for things like freedom, democracy, and independence. I am often disappointed by lackluster generational Canadians who like to sit around the table and complain about the government, but have almost no knowledge about what's actually going on and rarely participate in doing something about it. An old proverb reminds us that clever people go after knowledge to obtain it, and wise people tune their ears to hear it. Knowledge is crucial. I have two challenges for you today. Go after facts. Really go after facts, historical facts, and emerging data.
Get informed about what's going on in this country at a much deeper level than you have before. And two, wholeheartedly participate in the act of citizenship. Speak for those who have no democratic voice, like children who will inherit the country we leave them. Stand up for what is right. I urge you to share this show with at least one person who needs to hear it. We can all play a part in illuminating truth. MP Rachel Thomas really brought it home when she said during a recent parliamentary debate, the current government can try to reset, restart, and reimagine this country. But the fact is, the power belongs to the people. Canadians always have been and always will be the solution to the problems we face. I believe every human has innate value. I feel more emboldened than ever to redeem the concept of citizenship and to do whatever I can to be a part of the solution, united with fellow Canadians in the act of defending true freedom and democracy. Action might look like writing to your MLAs and members of parliament. You must support good transparent organizations who pursue truth and justice, who are fighting for you and for your children's future. Consider this, if we do not exercise our citizenship, people you don't agree with, they will. Be courageous, be confident, be outspoken, stand up for justice, mercy, and integrity. There is tremendous honor in keeping our leaders accountable. Let's all return to reason. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv. There, you can also find out more about Leon, his books, and his other media series. You can help us grow this podcast by rating, reviewing, sharing this episode with a friend, or subscribing. Still want more? Follow Leon Fontaine on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes.